0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. All right. In our favorite subtopic, what could possibly go wrong, (laughs) Vice is reporting that a brainless blob that can think is being sent to space to see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. There's a couple of contradictions in that that I'd like yeah. to question. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is a slime mold, and it is known as the blob, and it All will right. be launched to the International Space Station, where scientists are going to study how microgravity impacts the single-celled organism's capabilities. <laughs> what are its capabilities? You might be surprised. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think it's doing PhD physics over there. Like, what is no, it doing? No, But <laughs> the blob is also known as Physarum. Polycephalum and the yellow mold has become of immense interest to scientists studying animal cognition because of how it can think, make decisions, learn, and even navigate a maze despite not having a brain. Wow. (laughs) It's a slime mold that can navigate a maze? Yep. Not only that, the blob has also been found to adapt and transmit knowledge to other slime molds. This is an educational investigation carried out by the National Center for Space Studies in partnership with the French Center for Scientific Research and the European Space Agency.
1: Is this the same mission where they're sending all those rich dudes up there to just <gasps> do science? Because
2: you know, it might be. I mean, if this this is apparently Northrop Grumman's 16th commercial resupply services mission so if yeah. they're tacked on to part of that then boy what a grab bag of like let's see what happens in yeah. space this is turning <laughs> out to be right that would be pretty awesome if you are a rich
0: person who's like oh man i've just bought the coolest thing and they're like oh and in the seat next to you is the slime mold who we
2: really care about
0: like you <laughs> are nothing
2: <laughs> the goal of the experiment is to observe how microgravity impacts the blob's behavior towards its favorite food any guesses oh, oh well, I, I don't know, what a slime molds <laughs> eat? I know, it's a little open-ended. Yeah, I have a problem with the word favorite in this context, too. Like, how <laughs> do they know? Well, it may have a preference. They may have put a bunch of stuff in front of it, and it kept going towards this food over and over, which, you know, mm-hmm. deduce that it's its favorite. Or maybe it's like nemesis that it feels like it has to eradicate at all costs. I mean, we are talking <laughs> about a blob here. But anyway, the food that it seems to prefer are oats. Okay.
1: Healthy slime mold.
2: (laughs) This project is going to use videos automatically recorded above the ISS where students ages 10 to 18 years old from 5,000 schools are going to compare the findings concluded from samples here on Earth against those found in the space station. So if you know any 10 to 18 year olds who are interested in this kind of thing and you want to follow along, um, apparently we are open sourcing this science experiment to the next generation.
0: Yeah, or we're traumatizing them all as they'll be (laughs) the first to witness the blob taking over the ISS one by one.
2: You know, we got to see the Challenger back in the 80s. It's just the torture we pass to the next generation. (laughs) What space hell are you going to be exposed to? (laughs) Um, According to Dr. Audrey Dussetour, a slime mold specialist and director of research at the French National Center for Scientific Research, the blob's growth and behavior will be observed over seven days, after which it will go into a dormant state and stay aboard the ISS. The Blob experiment will also be joined aboard by the Red Wire Regolith Print Study, which will demonstrate 3D printing on the space station using a material that resembles regolith or loose soil found on planets such as the moon. So, yeah, I think you guys are right. This is kind of a hodgepodge of if you got the money, let's go. (laughs) I mean, if the slime mold can afford the ticket, I'm not going to begrudge him a seat. there. It got a, a special passenger, like, instead of a pet that you have to take in a carrier, you have, like... <laughs> right, right. It's got little, a little vent
0: so it can breathe in its little <laughs> container. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: next link.
1: Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from Wired.com. It's titled, Why Even the Fastest Human Can't Outrun Your House Cat. I guess that's true.
0: They can run faster, yeah.
1: But we're going to get into the details. So you might think how fast an animal can go depends on the size of its muscles. More strength, more speed. And while that is true to a certain extent, an elephant will never outrun a gazelle. So what really determines maximum speed? Recently, a group of scientists led by biomechanist Michael Gunther, then affiliated with the University of Stuttgart, set out to determine the laws of nature that govern maximum running speeds in the animal kingdom. In a new study published last week in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, they present a complex model factoring in size, leg length, muscle density, and more to discover which body design elements are the most important for optimizing speed. This research provides insight into the biological evolution of legged animals and their corresponding gaits and how it could be used by ecologists to understand how speed constraints on animal movement inform population, habitat selection, and community dynamics in different species, while for roboticists and biomedical engineers, learning about nature's optimal body structures for speed could further improve the designs of bipedal walking machines as well as prosthetics. Hmm. Previous work in this area, led by Miriam Hertz of the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research, found that the key to speed had to do with an animal's metabolism, the process by which the body converts nutrients into fuel, a finite amount of which is stored in the muscle fibers for use when sprinting.
2: Aren't cats terrible metabolizers, though? Like, most of what they eat is carnivorous and it still has a high protein content when it comes out?
1: Yeah, that I don't know, but what they do say is that Hertz team found that larger animals run out of the fuel more quickly than small Mm. animals do. So Mm. smaller animals have an advantage there because it takes them more time to accelerate their heavier bodies. And it's known Mm. as muscle fatigue. So it's also theoretically why a human may have been able to outrun a T-Rex. And that's linked into another article, so you can check that out if you're interested. Uh, so, but Gunther and his colleagues were skeptical, so they built a biomechanical model consisting of over 40 different parameters relating to body design, the geometry of running, and the balance of competing forces acting on the body. Robert Rockenfeller, a mathematician at the University of Koblenz-Landau who co-authored the study, said, The basic idea is that two things limit maximum speed. The first is air resistance, or drag. Since the effects of drag don't increase with mass, it's the dominating factor capping speed in smaller animals. Rockefeller says, according to air drag, if you were infinitely heavy, you would run infinitely fast. Which we know doesn't quite work because of other laws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> such as the second property at play, which does increase with greater mass, is called inertia. So when running, there is a time limit for an animal to accelerate its own mass. It's the duration between mid stance when the foot is flat on the ground to lift off when the foot leaves the ground. And this is especially limiting for larger animals with more mass to push forward. So smaller bodies have the advantage here.
2: It's almost like how motorcycles have more torque than cars then. Like, you know, at a stoplight or red light, the torque just lets you kind of spring into action a lot faster, right? Yeah. I hmm. think that's
1: a good metaphor. I don't know much about motorcycles, but I trust you, Angie. <laughs> 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 so, according to the team's results, the sweet spot for overcoming air drag and inertia lies at around 110 pounds. And it's not a coincidence that that's actually the average weight of both cheetahs and pronghorns. Hmm. So, Gunther's team was also able to predict theoretical speed maximums for different body designs at 100 kilograms or about 220 pounds. And a house cat this size, which is a big house cat, maybe a Maine Coon, could run up to 46 (laughs) miles per hour. Dang! Whereas a giant spider... (laughs) <laughs> if its legs oh, no. could somehow sustain its weight, could uh, top out at 35 miles per hour. Nope. And unsurprisingly, the average human body design comes in last place here. At 100 kilograms, we can only reach about 24 miles per hour.
0: Which is still way faster than I can
1: run, I'll tell you right yes. now. <laughs> yeah, that is very, very, very fast. <laughs> but right now, I'm just imagining like being chased in a car by mm-hmm. a spider on foot down I-35 right. or something. Right, and, and it's just,
0: totally going to catch you. Yeah, Yeah, good.
1: Awful. <laughs> Anyways, so body size isn't the only feature that comes into play when maximizing speed. In the model, leg length also matters. Animals with longer legs are able to push their bodies further forward before their foot must leave the ground, prolonging the time they have to accelerate between mid-stance and liftoff. As for why four-legged animals can run faster than humans, Gunther says this isn't because we only have two legs, but because our torsos are positioned upright and feel the full force of gravity. Bipedal creatures have evolved with much more rigid spinal structures to prioritize balance and stability over speed. Animals whose trunks are parallel to the ground evolved with more flexible spines that are optimized for prolonged foot contact with Mm. the earth. Gunther and Rockefeller agree that experiments are needed to verify their conclusions, but all of the scientists note that doing so will be a challenge. The most accurate way to study running behavior in animals would be to implant mechanical sensors inside their muscles and track them as they move in their natural environment. But this raises obvious logistical challenges and ethical concerns, Gunther says. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mecha Cheetah would be kind of cool, but regardless, (laughs) you know, I get it. Yeah. (laughs) So will anyone ever beat Usain Bolt's record? Probably, but we won't get much faster than that. The biomechanics of sprinting show that we're already approaching the limit of what is possible for human bodies, and when someone new becomes the fastest person on the planet, they'll have to resign themselves to holding that title only among humans. In the animal kingdom, we're nothing special. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i mean theoretically though if i miraculously got my weight down to 110 pounds and practiced running on all fours and somehow loosened up my spine so that it wasn't so stiff yeah you're saying it's possible
2: yeah i mean i would love to see crab walk introduced as an official olympic sport or Heck like yeah. you know the four-footed dash like who oh, knows yeah. what we could do to kind of like Devolve back into like four footed physicality. Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: there is a whole fitness movement around this idea of like naturalistic, physical, more monkey animal like movement. And Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be all about, you know, integrating the entire body in your motions. It's very interesting stuff. uh, It looks like. Okay. So someone's
2: already developed. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. It's
1: been around for a long time, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Always behind the curve. That's (laughs) us. Yeah.
1: Alas. Next link next Next link
0: link. all right well reason.com has a somewhat disheartening article about the long american tradition of postal censorship and surveillance yeah and it's a little ironic because apparently the united states postal service was originally established as a countermeasure against surveillance Hmm. it was founded in 1775 one year before the declaration of independence specifically to allow american dissidents to communicate with each other without being intercepted by the British Postal Service, which was still the official agency in the colonies at the time. Mm -hmm. But it only took 70 years before they were doing the exact thing they had been (laughs) upset about in the first place. Namely, in 1835, mobs in the South seized and burned a collection of abolitionist pamphlets being sent through the mail And the postmaster general declined to investigate the matter, which established a de facto policy of Southern post offices opening and censoring any mail that promoted the abolition of slavery. So the abolitionists responded the same way the forefathers had, by establishing the first private American letter company. Founder Lysander Spooner, which is an awesome name, was an abolitionist, but he focused his public argument on the high cost of the U.S. Postal Delivery Service, rather than censorship. Smart. And he noted that while the Constitution called for a government-run postal service, it didn't exclude the possibility of other postal services. Unfortunately, the government disagreed, and the U.S. District Court ruled shortly afterward that private mail delivery was unconstitutional, which I guess obviously they changed their minds at some point because we have (laughs) FedEx, but uh, sadly the article doesn't mention when that happened. So abolitionism continued to be a central issue in postal censorship once the Civil War started, at which point both the Union and the Confederacy were running separate postal systems and both were censoring the mail according to their side's position. After the war was over, however, a new boogeyman reared its head in 1873 when the Comstock Act made it illegal to knowingly mail or receive, quote, any filthy book, pamphlet, picture, paper, letter, writing, print, or other publication of an indecent character— as well as any form of contraception, abortifacients, or any information (gasps) about acquiring or using said contraceptives or abortifacients. Jeez. Which, you know, you can maybe argue, okay, those things were illegal at the time, so it makes sense that they'd consider communication about them to be illegal. Except, in 1887, the Comstock Act was used to justify the arrest of three journalists who had been publishing articles making a pro-feminist argument against marital rape, And their description of such an assault in one of their articles was deemed, quote, indecent. And Ugh. while it wasn't illegal to write it or publish it, it was illegal under the Comstock Act to mail a copy of it to anyone. So all three journalists were arrested. Oh, wow. my gosh.
2: Yeah. But yeah. It is horrible and offensive because it describes a real thing that happened. Right. Oh exactly. And that
0: was what a lot of people at the time were saying. They're like, really? Like, this is the angle you're going to go with? But <laughs> there were also many instances of opening international mail during World War One and World War II. And in 1953, the CIA began reading correspondence between anyone in the U.S. and the Soviet Union. This secret program quickly extended to a much larger watch list, like you do, Until the agency was illegally opening more than 13,000 letters a year until the (laughs) operation ended in 1973. So we've been spied on from the beginning. Like, there is no privacy. The
2: operation ended in 1973? I guess that was sort of like right before the advent of the internet, where it became a lot easier to spy on everybody.
0: (laughs) I guess. Yeah, that's their story anyway, that they stopped in 1973. Right. Meanwhile, in 1970, the FBI considered a scheme to open and spray subversive political material with a chemical called scatole, which would allow them to be delivered but give them, quote, a most offensive odor. They (laughs) ultimately abandoned that plan in favor of others that just harassed the senders directly. But (laughs) And finally, of course, in 2001, you may remember some cases of anthrax being sent through the mail by various Uh, malcontents, mm -hmm. and that led to the creation of the Mail Isolation Control and Tracking System which photographs and stores the information on the exterior of virtually everything mailed in the United States to this day. Ugh. Yeah. But, you know, as you indicated, frankly, given what we know now about NSA tracking of electronic communication, simply knowing the date and address of a piece of mail honestly seems kind of quaint. I'm like, oh, yeah. you <laughs> took a picture of my letter. That's
2: adorable. <laughs> That's right. Someone wants a challenge today, huh? Apparently. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. All right, from People.com, yes, that People magazine, uh, Mm. we have one of these nightmare stories that actually came true. Oh, dear. Mistaken identity sent the wrong man to Hawaii Mental Hospital where he was stuck for two Years. Oh wow. <laughs> yep. That's not a small mistake. That's like nope. <laughs> it's a massive mistake. I'd actually read this article elsewhere and was happy to see it pop up on. I'm not happy to see it pop right. up on. Damn interesting. <laughs> but the man's name is Joshua Spredersbach, and he was declared delusional when he tried to repeatedly tell officials he was not the man they were looking for, Thomas Castleberry. Oh, but he claims like that they didn't that even d- get the name right. It wasn't <laughs> even like oh we have the same name. It was just some
0: other dude.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does struggle with a mental health disability, and he was homeless and waiting for food outside of a Honolulu restaurant in 2017 when he fell asleep on the sidewalk because of just heat and exhaustion. He was eventually woken up by a Hawaii police officer, and though he didn't have any ID on him, He told the officer his name, his date of birth, and his social security number Wow! hmm, under the assumption he was being arrested for violating the city's ban on sitting and lying down on public sidewalks. But his legal representation claims he was taken to the Oahu Community Correctional Center to be fingerprinted and photographed. And despite the fact that officers allegedly failed to compare the data to that of the real Castleberry, he was booked anyway for crimes committed by Castleberry in 2006. The petition called the situation a gross miscarriage of justice, not only because of the police department, but the Honolulu Office of the Public Defender, who had represented Castleberry since 2006, but still requested the court order a panel of doctors to evaluate Spreesterbach after he kept insisting he was not (laughs) Castleberry. And when he fought back, He was given doses of antipsychotic medications, including Haldol, which caused him to become despondent and catatonic, because of course it would. Right. And so finally, in November 2019, a treatment team allegedly obtained Spreesterbach's birth certificate. But despite new reports from psychiatrists that verified his identity, he was once again determined unfit to stand trial one month later.
1: Oh, my gosh. Eventually-
2: after a detective verified fingerprints and photographs, and it was determined that the real Castleberry had been in prison in Alaska since 2016. Oh, wow. <sighs> Spreesterbach was released from the hospital in January 2020, which we all know is right before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After wow. two years and eight months in prison and the hospitals where it had been determined he had been telling the truth the entire time. So. The good news is he's doing a lot better now, but the trauma that comes with being locked up and especially against your will and to be forced to take medications and not have anyone listen to you, I mean, mm-hmm. he still lives in a constant state of fear. The petition also claims that hospital doctors requested and reviewed prior treatment records, possibly as early as 2018. And if they just cross-referenced the dates that Spreester Bach had been requesting, they would have realized, based on the date the crimes were committed, it would have been impossible for him mm-hmm. to be the culprit. So once they finally confirmed that Spreesterbach was not Castleberry, apparently the officials held a secret meeting of which there is no court record or public court recording, something the petition calls, in classic understated legalese, troubling. Uh (laughs) That's the point at which you figured out, oh, man, we have screwed up royally.
0: How do we not let word of this get out? And clearly they failed. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah,
2: it was the Streisand effect, and thank God the Innocence Project was there to amplify this injustice because, you know, because he has a mental health disability, no one's going to believe what happened to him because, mm-hmm. you know, let's just pile on some more of that gaslighting. Or maybe they were thinking he's not competent enough to seek redress for what happened to him, but, you know, without the record being corrected and a finding of actual innocence, Mr. Spreesterbot can still be arrested for Thomas Castleberry's crime. Which is the hugest miscarriage of justice. So Mm -hmm. the man now lives with his sister in Vermont. Though she told the AP that her brother refuses to leave the property for fear they're going to take him again. Which, okay, I yeah. get it. Because part of what they used against him was his own argument. I'm not Thomas Castleberry. I didn't commit these crimes. This isn't me. And then when the light is shown on it, what do they do? They don't even put it on the record. They don't make it part of the case. And they don't come to him and say, we're sorry. Or even, gee, this wasn't you. You were right all along. So mm-hmm. he still hasn't gotten that kind of validation. But
1: I mean, I hope Oof. he sues everybody involved and gets millions of dollars out of this because yeah. he deserves it. I
2: agree. I agree. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. Next link.
1: Next link. link. This article comes to us from Alto.fi, and it's titled, The Human Ear Detects Half a Millisecond Delay in Sound. Hmm. So, acoustic researchers at Alto University, in collaboration with professional monitoring loudspeaker manufacturer Genelik, have investigated just how small of a variation in sound delay the human ear can detect in the most sensitive frequency range for hearing. But what makes this study unique is that the researchers studied not only the effect of delays, but also how listeners perceive a negative delay in a range of frequencies. Hmm. This negative delay adjusted in fractions of a thousandth of a second was produced by filters that shift audio selectively at certain frequencies to a different point in time without affecting the magnitude of the sound. Mm -hmm. So Juho Liskey postdoctoral researcher in Aalto University says, the frequency selective time reverse filtering technique we use is novel technology in the field of digital signal processing. To achieve a negative delay, we need to move into the future. This phenomenon was produced with software that acts, in a manner of speaking, as a time machine. Mm. Doesn't really clear it up for me at all, but <laughs> sounds very cool. <laughs> in the listening experiment, 12 subjects listened to processed and unprocessed sound, and the researchers studied whether participants were able to reliably distinguish between them. The sounds easiest to identify were a castanet, a percussion instrument, and short clicks. Mm and researchers recognize that audio is delayed as a function of frequency as it passes through a loudspeaker, but questions have remained on how audible the resulting delay variations in audio are at different frequencies. Aki Makivirta is Genelec's R&D director and says, the main goal of our development is to reproduce complete audio that has been recorded, but nothing extra. It is vital that loudspeakers can create a precise stereo soundstage and reproducing time-accurate sound is a central part of this. Mm. Research collaboration with Alto University deepens our understanding of the accuracy requirements needed to design loudspeakers. So essentially, I believe the key goal of this study is to understand the ways in which audio is transmitted through high-fidelity speakers. Mm -hmm. So this is really for audiophiles or just, I mean, apparently everybody, because just the average human being can detect a half millisecond delay. I didn't think I could perceive something that quickly. Yeah,
0: I was thinking there was going to be a visual component where it was like, oh, you can, if you shift the sound of a footstep Mm -hmm. off from a video of somebody walking, you know, how how much do you have to shift it before you can say like, that's not right. Because I feel Mm. like that stuff is off all the time in Foley and video games and stuff. I notice it constantly. I'm like, the sound is not timed correctly. But that's (laughs) clearly more than a half a millisecond. Like That's a much bigger shift. So it really just means there is no excuse for those sound designers to have
1: failed as badly as they did, <laughs> bad yeah. at their
2: jobs, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, as somebody who's done a little bit of game dev, I will give a defense to them and say it's much more complicated than that because yeah. you're dealing with a lot of multiple pieces. But I do agree yeah. they should not release a game that's messed up that bad.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, you know, doesn't that back. also depend on people's like setup and equipment and processing cards and if they've built a little their own bit? Piece. I mean, yes. yeah. 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 It, it definitely does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very complicated, which is why we're studying this so that's right that's right yeah sound designers i apologize (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next
2: link.
0: link all right well the 2021 olympics have just wrapped up this past week and in celebration the bbc has an article called how to train like an ancient greek olympian Ooh. Ooh. So, you know, it's sort of a breakdown of traditional fitness routines from a time when both mechanical technology and knowledge of anatomy were significantly more limited than they are today. And some of their ideas are not completely surprising, such as the workout routine of Milo of Croton, an ancient Greek wrestler who won a total of six Olympic titles over the course of his career. Milo was said to be so strong that he could break a cord wrapped around his head using only the strength of his brow.
2: What? Yeah, like I think he like just like, urgh, like furrowed his brow really hard <laughs> and the, the cord snapped. I mean, why don't we bring that competition back? That sounds way fun to watch. It does. It does. You'd have to start with like cooked spaghetti. Like I don't think anybody
1: could
0: <laughs> do anything close to that. And he supposedly built his physique by lifting a particular male calf off the ground each day, which of course got bigger <laughs> in size as it grew. So eventually it was a full sized bull. At which point, he supposedly hefted the whole thing onto his shoulders and paraded it around Olympia before slaughtering
2: it and eating it. Oh, no. Wow. Oh, that poor calf. His whole life, it was that particular calf. And he kept getting interaction from his favorite human. And he got to fly for brief moments every day. Oh. Oh, there was so much in that sentence. It was like a whole story. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, and on the one hand, a
0: full-sized bull weighs somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 pounds, which would exceed the heaviest deadlift on record if the story is true. And there you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, the idea of progressive overload or increasing your weightlifting by a tiny amount every single day is, in fact, a principle that's used by modern trainers today. Oh, And whether or not Milo himself lifted that much weight, there has also been an archaeological stone discovered in the former city of Thera that weighs over a thousand pounds and is inscribed with the name of a man who supposedly lifted it off the ground. So uh, we've got multiple sources saying that the ancient Greeks were just flat out way stronger than we are. Mm. Some other techniques we know about come from a text called Gymnasticus, which was written by Philostratus the Athenian around the second century. And those include chasing farm animals bending bars of iron, and swimming in the sea while wearing a full suit of armor. Some athletes would bridle four horses together and attempt to hold them all in place, while others would focus on resistance training like standing still while others tried to push them over. Uh, Another common technique of the time that's still used today was punching bags. In ancient Mm -hmm. Greece, weaker athletes would fill their bags with flour and fig seeds, while stronger ones used sand. Mm -hmm. One thing we don't have anymore, but we probably should, is the idea of a gymnasia being both a physical and a mental training ground. The top Mm. athletes of the day were full-time athletes. None of them had day jobs, but they were expected to attend philosophical dialogues and other intellectual pursuits as part of their physical training.
1: That is so classy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's worth noting that not everyone at the time agreed with this, including Philostratus, who wrote that athletes of his day were sluggish and soft compared to earlier centuries, which he blamed on the separation of athletics from warfare, the rise in monetary payments to athletes, which he said stoked their greed, and the increased availability of luxurious foods. So it was the classic, you know, these football players get paid too much. You know, they they play one Mm -hmm. game a week and how dare they deserve millions. Like that was effectively (laughs) what was happening back then. Gymnasia also employed trainers called Tribes a word which stems from the roots for boy and to rub, which scholars say suggests their main focus was sports massage. Oil also played an important role in the wrestling itself, but in the opposite way you might think, wrestlers would oil themselves before a match and then stick sand all over their bodies for added grip. Whoa. Like the sweat made them too slippery, and so they would attach sand to themselves to make it fair. Oh. After the match, they would scrape off the mixture of sweat, oil, and sand with a ceremonial tool called a strigil. And the scrapings from famous athletes were a prized possession that would be sold in small bottles to the public. Like, that's disgusting, I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Many in Greek combat sports also thought that sexual temptation was damaging to their physical prowess and would abstain from intimate relations altogether. One champion was even known for turning his head when he saw dogs copulating in the street so as to maintain his inner strength and concentration.
2: <laughs> is that like the ancient Greek version of like, think of your grandma. Exactly. It totally is. <laughs> as for women
0: themselves, they were theoretically prohibited even from watching the Olympics, let alone participating, which is illustrated by the case of Kalipatera a mother who snuck into the crowd in disguise in order to watch her son box in the games, but she became so excited when he won that she revealed herself by accident. <laughs> which I just love the idea of like, yay! And then like her little headpiece falls off and they're like, oh. but oh <laughs> yeah. She was ultimately pardoned by the courts, but only because her son, father, and brother were all Olympic champions. At the same time, however, there is evidence in rare cases of women athletes participating in the Olympics over the centuries, including a vase painting from the 6th century B.C. depicting a woman called Atalanta wrestling with men. And in 392 B.C., the Spartan Siniska was the first woman to ever win the chariot races. So they seem to kind of go back and forth on Mm -hmm. whether they would allow it or not. Mm -hmm. The ancient Greeks also had a little mysticism in their fighting techniques including a deep breathing technique that was meant to harness an ethereal substance called pneuma, which scholars say was a little like the Chinese concept of chi. So in this deep breathing meditative state, one athlete was said to have struck his opponent's abdomen with his fingers outstretched flat, kind of like in a karate chop formation. And he did it so hard, he pierced the other guy's skin and tore out his intestines oh wow again it's like it's really hard to know how much of this is true because some of it sounds so ridiculous right also if you live in a society where like from the age of three you're doing nothing but physical training Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's possible i don't know (laughs) and in general maiming and death were both common in the ancient games including one wrestler who was nicknamed fingertips because he would break his opponent's fingers at the start of every match. Like, that was just the first thing he did was, give me your hand, I'm going for it. And Milo of Croton, the guy who could break a cord with the muscles in his forehead, he supposedly died during a training exercise in which he was trying to tear a living tree trunk apart. And in the process, he got his legs stuck in the crevice of the partially separated oh, wood. No. no,
2: no. No
0: one came to rescue him, or perhaps no one else was strong enough. And he was ultimately devoured by either wolves or a lion, depending on which source you read. Oh, God. Yeah. Another thing the Greeks could never agree on was diet. Some said a vegetarian diet was best. Others focused on meat, including Milo before he became meat himself. At the height of his performance, (laughs) he supposedly ate 17 and a half pounds of meat a day. Like Yeah, at some point, these are like Paul Bunyan stories. Like, I just cannot imagine that a man was eating 17 and a half pounds of meat a day. That's how you pop a cord around your head, I'll tell you. That's right. He probably just had an aneurysm, and they didn't want to admit it. So they're like, (laughs) he was tearing a tree apart. (laughs) Next link.
2: Next link. link. Okay, this one comes to us from <laughs> BBC Travel. We're going to stay in the ancient modern times, and we're going to be talking about an Egyptian food fit for a pharaoh. Hmm. This is called molokhia, and I apologize if I get it wrong, because it's spelled a lot of different ways. The most common one in this article is M-O-L-O-K-H-I-A, but pronounced molokhia. Okay. It was dubbed the food of kings, and it's... Really not appetizing looking, I have to say, (laughs) as an American person. It's kind of like if chimichurri sauce was like watered down into a soup. So it's like a green kind of gloop. All right. And it was even apparently outlawed in Egypt at one point because of its alleged aphrodisiac effect. Mm. It's noted as being so easy to swallow. Mothers feed their babies on it after nursing.
0: What do you do when you don't have airplanes yet? Like, how does the airplane go into the hangar if you don't? Was it the chariot? (laughs) The chariot's going into
2: the tunnel? It originates from the word mulukia, which is that which belongs to the royals in its translation. And even though the ancient Egyptians left no culinary recipes, we do see food remains from tombs and coffin murals that will depict baking and other food-related activities. But it's no longer just sort of a royal thing. These days, mulukia is a staple of every Egyptian kitchen. It's not a very expensive vegetable. It's for the rich and the poor, at least as it's known today. I want to
0: know what the relationship is between this slime in a bowl and the slime
2: mold that's going into space. (laughs) Like, how, how many cousins are there between before you, you turn one into the other? I mean, we're obsessed with these ancient aliens things. It could have been just slime and mold all along and right. been living with it. And, you know, an allergy to mold. It's not really an allergy. It's a susceptibility to their brain takeover. But it is that gum-like texture that can either get tourists to love or hate it. You know, Western culture is not really big on textures kind of the way Chinese culture is. Like, there are mm-hmm. words to describe food textures that just don't exist in the English language. But if you are the kind of person who can handle a slimy texture, your gut and your waistline will thank you later because Molojia is excellent for the digestive system. A recent study published in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology reveals that the leaves can even prevent gut inflammation and obesity hmm. it's packed with vitamin c vitamin e potassium iron and fiber we all need to eat more fiber yeah it sounds kind of mm-hmm. like a seaweed salad like i like you know i go to the yeah. Asian store
0: and get the little pre-packaged side dishes and sometimes i eat just those i don't even get like an actual meal i'm just like <laughs> Give me some daikon radish. Give me some of the seaweed salad. I'll just have a fistful of ginger. That works
2: too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to find if someone can make this or if there's a place to get it here in Texas. Yeah. We'll have to look for Egyptian restaurants when we get off this recording. (laughs) 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 Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from CNET.com. It's titled, NASA Astronaut Reacts to, quote, unquote, Spiders on the ISS. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So this one is really more of just like a little anecdote about space. It's not quite as terrifying as it seems. (laughs) So there have been some unusual sights on the International Space Station. Elvis, a gorilla suit, flatworms, and Yoda. These are all links out to other places that you'll have to click. (laughs) But spiders free-floating around the ISS. Only in an astronaut's imagination. Hmm. So NASA astronaut and current ISS crew member Megan MacArthur shared what might be considered a space shower thought on Thursday. MacArthur tweeted, Is it weird that after 100 days on the space station when I see a small piece of lint or food float by, my body still reacts like spider a split second <laughs> before my brain can chime in with relax, you're in space, remember? Yeah. not positive. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes to show how some of the familiar human reactions we have on Earth don't just disappear when we're up in orbit. Mm-hmm. NASA's ISS Research Twitter account also chimed in with a history tidbit. While there aren't spiders up there with you now, there have been spiders on station for research. Golden orb spiders were sent to space to study if, and how arachnids spin their webs differently in microgravity. Hmm. That spider mission was back in 2011, and as far as we know, none of the web-slinging denizens escaped to run free in the wilds of the station. And as for the experiment, researchers found the spider's space webs looked very similar to the ones they weave back on Earth. So MacArthur doesn't have to worry about arachnids, but she has had some other tiny life forms for company in orbit, including baby squid and tardigrades.
0: I mean, baby squid could have just been calamari for dinner, but I'm sure they were still living when they went up there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I presume.
0: I don't know. It sounds though like it might be a case of like space psychosis. Like I forget what yeah. they call it, but it's like a very real thing where some people just can't handle anti gravity and they lose it and they have to be restrained until they can go back space to Earth. Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would assume it's a yeah. real thing. She better watch out. Might get locked up yeah. for two years on accident. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. Oh, oh.
0: All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include. The ingenious ancient technology concealed in the shallows. The water from your tap is an engineering marvel millennia in the making. And if China and the U.S. claim the same moon base site, who wins? All of those and everything we talked about today can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen,
0: and we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.